This podcast is sponsored by Nestle Health Science, the makers of peptamin formulas, the only peptide-based formulas with enzymatically hydrolyzed 100% whey protein to help with tube feeding intolerance. Used by healthcare professionals for over 30 years with more than 60 clinical studies. To learn more, visit peptamin.com. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Smith. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Jaishel Patel. He is the Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Patel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Smith. Um, I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about the enteral nutrition um, and how important that is to the critically uh, ill patient today. And I kind of wanted to start off um, with with just kind of a general question for you. How how important is it to manage the nutrition status of a critically ill patient? And and isn't it? And if, if malnutrition is there, doesn't that usually come with some pretty bad outcomes? Yes, absolutely. Let me answer that question by taking a step backwards for just a moment, um, and just try and describe, at least from you know a, a bird's eye view of, of what happens to our, our patients when they do become um, critically ill. You know, critical illness um, is, is something that leads to significant uh, substrate, you know, utilization. If we think about starvation for just a moment, you know, if you were to starve yourself starting today, the order of substrate utilization would be glucose, your glycogen stores, fat would get utilized thereafter uh, for ketogenesis. But from there, um, Protein is really preserved. The body does everything it can to maintain sort of your lean muscle mass. Now, we go into a hypocatabolic state with starvation. Now, contrast that to critical illness. Critical illness is a hypercatabolic state. And so the body does everything it can to ramp up glucose production. It undergoes glycogenolysis, which is rapidly exhausted. And from there, it's actually protein that is broken down, and the body does what it can does what it can to actually limit fat metabolism, and so critical illness leads to heightened glucose production and hyperglycemia that's associated with that. It leads to significant proteolysis, and a lot of that protein that gets broken down actually comes from the muscle and the GI tract, for example, and so this is what. Um, some uh, have termed the caloric debt that is associated with critical illness. So the stages of critical illness, everything from the early acute phase, late acute phase, and the chronic phase, um, contributes to this caloric debt that is associated. And we know that the, the more calories your deficit um, in critical illness, it's associated with bad outcomes. So it's another way of saying critical illness certainly predisposes people to an acquired malnutrition state. Yeah, very, so I, I love the great, great um, description of, of what's what's going on there, and and it leads, and then it leads though to, to another question, right, Doctor Patel? Uh, in most cases, though, isn't the primary energy source that you're giving to these critically ill patients sugar? It, it, and, and not as much protein. Is that starting to change? Are you starting to see in a critical care setting um, uh, protein uh, supplementation being just as important as sugar? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, we, we've learned a tremendous amount over the past couple of decades. One, one thing that, that's really happened is that um, survivorship from critical illness is improving. And so as more people survive critical illness, um, they're surviving to significant um, deficiencies in uh, physical abilities. So they have uh, uh, impaired quality of life simply as a, a result of what's happened to them while they were critically ill. So A, they're sedated. B, they're immobilized. C, they have heightened inflammation. And all of these things sort of combined leads to this proteolysis that we talked about. But we think that that also contributes to the impaired quality of life and physical limitations that these patients can have years after their sentinel illness. And so now we think that by providing these patients greater amounts of protein during critical illness, that we can potentially mitigate some of that. The, the question still remains, though, in terms of the timing of uh, protein delivery. So the ASPEN and the Society of Critical Care Medicine uh, 2016 guideline um, puts forth a recommendation of 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram of actual body weight protein delivery in all uh, critically ill patients. There's some adjustments for things like obesity, for example, but in general, 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram of protein. Um, and there's significant um, observational data that's present now that suggests that that uh, amount of protein or higher may be even more beneficial in those who have, uh, again, the acquired malnutrition. Yeah. I, so let's, a couple of questions here. So, so first of all, let's go back to the idea that in the critically ill patient, you're dealing really with a high catabolic uh, state, you know, process that's going on. You're, you're breaking down the sugar, you're breaking down the protein. Is the goal to, to reverse that catabolic state? Or are you just really trying to keep up with it? Um, and, and is there any studies that show maybe in this case, like more protein, will that actually help you to reverse that catabolic state or is it still just kind of keeping up with, with the loss of, of the protein in the sugar? Well, I think, um, it's going to be very difficult to keep up. Um, now let me again, take one more step back if I may, and, and talk about one other, uh, thing as we granulate further, what happens in, in criticalness. So, so far we've talked about the significant proteolysis and the loss of amino acids as well. But the other thing that happens at the level of the gut is that there's, there's significant gut dysfunction and that gut dysfunction comes in the form of three things. First is that the epithelial barrier, um, is breached. Um, the second thing that happens as a result of that is that the immune system is more favored towards going uh, into a pro-inflammatory state, which perpetuates the inciting inflammation that brought the patient into the critical illness setting to begin with. And the third thing that happens is, you know, our commensal microbiome or the healthy bacteria that live in symbiosis really with us um, suddenly become more virulent as well. And so the role of nutrition, specifically enteral nutrition, um, is in the early phases of critical illness, we think right now is to support that gut function. And so it maintains the epithelial barrier layer, which then can perhaps mitigate some of the downstream consequences that um, I described earlier as well. At this juncture, if we can partition 
the phases of critical illness into one of three. There's the early acute phase. This is when people are sick. We're resuscitating these um, individuals. Um, the late acute phase, maybe the inflammatory response is starting to wane a little bit. We're maybe starting to remove some of our support systems a little bit. And then there's that chronic phase. Those are the people that are in the ICU typically for more than a week, you know, and kind of chug along and have this undulating course, if you will. In that early phase of critical illness, nutrition in the current era is um, meant to be delivered to, again, support the um, enteral, the gut functions. And we think that you can do that with just a little bit of nutrition. And what do I mean by a little bit? We think we can do it, probably achieve it with what is called hypocaloric nutrition. Others have used terms like trophic nutrition as well. And so trophic is just delivering 10 to 30 cc's an hour directly into the gut. And we think that that amount, at least in animals, um, preserves the gut barrier functions, immune functions and such. Um, hypocaloric nutrition is also delivering a little bit of nutrition. So, you know, anywhere from 40 to 60% of the prescribed goal. But the difference is, is that you optimize the protein component of that as well. So again, in the, the early hyperacute acute phase of critical illness, once resuscitation strategies have been under, undertaken, you, we deliver hypocaloric nutrition to support the gut function as best as possible. And when you do that, when you do that early on, when, when you support the gut function um, early on, do you find then that it's easier to maintain a healthy nutrition status in those later phases? Um, is there any, any data that supports that? that that's a great question. Um, I don't, I'm not aware of any data that supports that. But here, here's what I will tell you. I will tell you that... Um, the meta-analyses that were cited in the 2016 Aspen and SCCM guidelines suggest that if you give individuals early nutrition, so that's within the first 24 to 48 hours of hospital uh, ICU admission, compared to not giving them anything at all, at all through the enteral route, um, there is an um, improvement in infectious complications as well as mortality as well. So that's, that's the one thing that we, that we do know, is that data compiled between, say, 1979 and 2012 suggests that there was an improvement in infectious complications, and then data compiled between 1986 and 2011 suggests that early uh, enteral nutrition is associated with uh, improvements in uh, mortality. I want to, I Dr. Patel, I want to stick with the, the protein um, issue going on here and also the gut um, a follow-up question to, to um, the gut health uh, issue early on, uh, is, is anybody looking at some of the healthy gut supplements that might be out there, like probiotics early on? Is there anybody looking at that? And if so, do we, do we know anything or is there any benefit of adding probiotics early on to, to the feeding? There, is, um, there are randomized control trials that have delivered uh, probiotics to individuals who are critically ill. Um, however, when they put them into a meta-analysis, um, there wasn't a benefit that was seen. Now, however, I will say that the largest uh, study of using uh, probiotics was one that was done in a critically ill subset of patients who had acute pancreatitis, where they were delivering uh, nutrition right into the small bowel. Many of these patients were hemodynamically um, unstable you know, at the time, and they delivered probiotics, uh, again, right into the small bowel. And so one of the criticisms of that particular study um, is that these individuals were sort of set up 
for bad things to happen. When you take somebody who's hemodynamically unstable and you put you put nutrition right into the small bowel and you put probiotics right into the, the small bowel, you're almost kind of setting them up for, for failure. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, so let's go back to the protein. You had mentioned that the average amount, and, well, averages is tough with critically ill patients, right? But um, you said it was around 1 to 1.2 grams per kilogram, right? Um, And you had said that in some cases there might be support of of using more protein because when I hear that, when I hear 1.2 and critical, that seems kind of low to me. What are your feelings about the average amount of protein that is being um, used and and should we be looking at higher doses? So the protein dose that's recommended is 1.2 to 2 grams. Now, the lower end of that protein recommendation is based on data that suggests that 1.2 grams per kilogram per day of protein in critically ill patients um, has been shown to improve nitrogen balance. So this is what you were referring to earlier when you said that, you know, can we keep up with our protein losses? And so there's some observational level data that suggests that if you give um, at least 1.2, you can probably maintain nitrogen balance. Now, there's differences in the data. So, for example, um, one of my colleagues, uh, Raleigh Dickerson out of Tennessee, suggested that in a subset of trauma patients, he didn't get the uh, improvement in nitrogen balance well beyond two grams uh, per kilogram per day. So, if you take a general general ICU population, 1.2 is probably what it takes to get to nitrogen balance. But if you start looking at some subsets, it might actually be even higher. Another subset, for example, is renal failure. Well, are there, Dr. Patel, are there any other um, comorbidities, obesity, diabetes that would require maybe a higher protein intake? Yeah, so the um, the, camp, the, the uh, 2016 Aspen and SCCM guideline suggests that in obese patients, so those who have a BMI of more than 30, to actually use more than two grams per kilogram uh, per day of protein. But what's, what's actually emerging in the data, and he- here's where it gets interesting, is that, you know, n- obviously no, no two ICU patients are ever alike. And so what we're doing is we're, we're trying to find subsets of patients who may benefit from more uh, nutrition provision, including protein provision. And one such subset may be those who are at what are, what's called nutritional risk. So nutritional risk is the risk of developing complications from your ICU stay simply as a result of receiving too little nutrition support. And so um, some some colleagues um, out of Canada have developed scoring systems to identify nutritional risk. One such scoring system is called the Nutric score. And that score has been applied on day three to say, is this patient going to benefit from ramping up the amount of nutrition? And there's observational level data that suggests that if you are at high nutritional risk, the more protein you get, there's an association with improved mortality. And they looked at this in individuals who stayed in the ICU for four days, as well as 12 days of nutrition therapy. Wow, that's pretty interesting, and and that's and that's important to look at some of those the lengths of stay too, right? And you know, in, in a critically ill patient, 
you know, it's it it changes um, the longer that they're that they're in that state, and obviously a lot of their nutritional requirements will, will change as well, which is also I, I think makes it hard to study all this. Right, you have to really pinpoint what type of critical care patient you're actually looking at, the comorbidities, the length of stay. Um, I want to I want to um, move on to something different now and talk a little bit about. Uh, the the current guidelines and um, what they recommend for assessing the nutritional status in a in a critical care patient. What are some of the things that you look at that helps you to determine if you're on point with the nutrition or if there is that deficit that you mentioned before? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I will say that the concept of nutritional risk also applies to individuals. Um, health prior to coming to the hospital. So if you take day zero, you're, you're going to have patients who are admitted to the ICU who come in with pre-existing malnutrition. And one tool that many of our dietitians use to identify malnutrition is something called a subjective global assessment. And some of the criteria include things like, how much weight have you lost What's been your appetite? What's your appetite been like um, recently? And depending on um, what they identify, you can certainly classify somebody as mild, moderate, or severe malnutrition. And that's going to be important. The reason why that's important is because if you have somebody who comes into the ICU with critical illness and they have pre-existing malnutrition, well, it turns out that that, that person might need a to achieve a greater protein prescription than somebody who doesn't. In fact, the recommendations right now for, some, for using parenteral nutrition or nutrition through the IV is to start it as soon as possible in those who have pre-existing malnutrition. Because meta-analyses have suggested that if you wait to, and do nothing for those individuals, there's uh, an increased risk for mortality in that population. So that's the first piece is the pre-existing uh, malnutrition. That's the way that the SGA is one such way to, to identify that population as well. But then there's people who come in well-nourished, or I should really say not malnourished, but, but the critical illness itself is a risk factor for developing malnutrition. For all the reasons that I, that I mentioned before, you know, we... Um, the, 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 their illness itself leads to, again, proteolysis, a hypercatabolic state. Um, some of these patients who say go on dialysis may develop things like micronutrient uh, deficiencies as well. And so those individuals may also benefit from uh, greater uh, nutrition provision. But the timing of that is sort of yet to be determined. The recent European Society of uh, parenteral enteral nutrition or ESPIN guidelines did a wonderful job by, again, partitioning the stages of critical illness, the early acute stage, the late acute stage, and the chronic stage. And they actually put placeholders in, in terms of sort of time, based on time. But the reality is, is we don't know when patients shift from one stage to another. And that may be important from a nutritionist perspective, because that might be the time to actually start to ramp up or down their nutrition. 
When you're in this process of assessing that, you know, that the, maybe the pre-nutrition status and then the status of, of the patient that you see right there in front of you, how important is laboratory work? Are, are you guys still looking at, say, albumin levels? You know, we don't um, uh, look at albumin levels. It's not recommended or pre-albumin levels. Um, I think the data for utilizing pre-albumin uh, levels um, is for elective surgery patients, you know, outpatients but not in a critical care setting. And, and the reason for that is because uh, if you were to look at albumin and pre-albumin levels in your critically ill patients on you know, day zero, day one, whatever it is, um, they're going to be low. And they're going to be low because the liver just reprioritizes the proteins it needs to make. So instead of making things like pre-albumin and albumin, the priorities are now to make protein for immunity, for wound healing, and to combat you know, the, the inflammation. Right, right. So it doesn't really take, you would expect it to be low and, and there, lo and behold, it's, it's low. So it doesn't really give you any information to help assess status. You know, we've, Dr. Patel, wow, fascinating. We've covered so much stuff, right? We, we've talked about protein, the catabolic state, sugar, um, you know, the assessment of, of nutritional status and how important that is. Are, when you look at the, 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 the specialty and, and what you do every day, are, are there areas for improvement um, in in, in the nutritional status of a critically ill patient? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I guess how much time do we have, right? Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think um, there's, there's sort of a, many questions that still you know, need to be answered. But in the context of what we've already talked about, I think we need to better identify you know, um, how we go from the early um, stage of critical illness to the late early stage of critical illness to the chronic stage of critical illness, because that'll help us sort of modify our nutrition prescription uh, in many ways. So for example, right now, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the recommendations, at least from the ESPN guidelines, are to do hypocaloric or give a little bit of nutrition through the gut just to support the gut function. But one thing we don't understand very well is how quickly should we ramp that up? Right? So how quickly should we go from, say, 25% of a caloric prescription up to 100% of the calorie prescription? And the reason why that's going to be important is because there are certain things that prevent people from ramping it up much, much faster. One of them is like refeeding syndrome. Another one is we know that our critically ill patients have a high endogenous glucose production, or I should really say a variable endogenous glucose production, which contributes to the hyperglycemia. Early in the phase of critical illness, there may be more intolerance with greater amounts of nutrition. And now we have data that suggests that there's mitochondrial failure um, early in critical illness as well. And so the substrates we provide, the mitochondria can't process. So there's a lot of work I think that needs to be good. To, to talk about the, the phases of critical illness, when one phase ends, another one starts, and what it means for our protein as well as our general energy prescriptions. Fascinating work, Dr. Patel. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you also for coming on the show to get today. This concludes another edition of the I Critical Care Podcast for the I Critical Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Nestle Health Science, the makers of peptamin formulas, the only peptide-based formulas with enzymatically hydrolyzed 100% whey protein to help with tube feeding intolerance. Used by healthcare professionals for over 30 years with more than 60 clinical studies. To learn more, 
Visit Peptamen.com. Michael A. Smith, M.D., received his medical doctorate from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He practiced internal medicine and radiology in Dallas, Texas in the early 2000s before transitioning to the pharmaceutical and nutraceutical industries as an educator and consultant. The Eye Critical Care Podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members or that of the podcast commercial supporter.